everyone, my name is Austin Parenti. And my name is Aaron Mejias. And welcome back to your third favorite podcast, The Academy Podcast, <laughs> starring me, Austin Parenti. <laughs> and... I'm not saying my name again. <laughs> and, and Aaron Mejias. Now, Aaron is all the way in West Virginia right now. Um, but what are you doing up there, buddy? Recording a podcast. He flew all the way to West Virginia to record a podcast, which is really, really something. I'm still here in Minnesota, um, and uh, we're just we're having a grand old time. But we thought, you know what? Our viewers need us. Uh, you need us. Um, yes. Take it from absolutely. me. Take it from me. You need us. Uh, and so we said, hey, let's do this podcast episode, not for us, but for the people who need us. And so here we are. Um, so today we're looking at Epicurus's uh, Epicurus, uh, ep- the art well, we of happiness. Really, <laughs> we haven't really done like we haven't talked about like you know us. Oh, you want to talk about us? I mean, we usually give them an update, especially when it's so long in between episodes. That's true, and and they do need us. Um, they do need us. So. I hate this intro. <laughs> so, why don't you take it away? What are you doing in Colorado? <laughs> you you could <can> do it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Academy Podcast. My name is Aaron Mejias, and my name is Austin Parenti. <laughs> Excellent. And sorry, sorry, and so sorry that we were uh, I'm delayed. Not and oh, I'm okay. not sorry. <laughs> All right, that's we fine. have I lives am. to live. We are yeah, doing this as a favor to our fans because they <laughs> need us. <laughs> so what ended up happening was that I was called up for active service with the Air Force for a few months. Yes, so you're I'm in Colorado. Yes, um, but maybe a little bit closer is Mississippi. Okay, so Minnesota. So yeah, close enough, and Got so. Yeah, and then Austin is still in uh, West Palm Beach. So what? No. Um, Shut it took up. Me, <laughs> it took me a little bit of time to, uh, uh, you know, kind of adjust to the new lifestyle. Well, they had you in exactly quarantine, my... right, for like two weeks. Yeah, yeah, I was in quarantine for two weeks, and and then uh, and then uh, I was, you know, doing details, and then eventually got into class, and and now you know I'm studying. And uh, I was just trying to figure out exactly what, you know, what's the pacing in here and what's the, you know, what's the day kind of look like. And, and now we, you know, we found a weekend that, uh, you know, we could record. And so hopefully we'll be putting out some more episodes. You know, it also took some time to, you know, get the recording equipment here. I, you know, I bought a new laptop. And so now everything's good to go. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so hopefully I'll be able to kind of read and study for the podcast right alongside me being in school for the Air Force. So. Right, right. And this, this remote method that we'll be doing is probably the way we'll do it in the future since Aaron wants to move three hours away from me um, <laughs> okay. in, instead okay. of just living so for in the our, same town. For our, listeners, for our listeners who really don't care, I only proposed moving 40 minutes north it's of Austin. three hours. I've never even heard of the town he wants to move to. It's 40 minutes north, like 40, 45 minutes, and it's far cheaper and it's far more green it's open spaces. So all of that nice. comes before our friendship. Open space <laughs> I, crap. I think I money. Think. <laughs> and I told him he could right. live with us. 
Austin and I live very close, and I I just think that he's just having a very visceral reaction to things, and it would be okay if I moved out of West Palm, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, whatever. So. I mean, some people live for their friends and fight for their friends, um, such as me. I fight for my friends, um, and others don't, and I think you have I fight for my pocketbook. You fight for your I your fight purse. for my wallet. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of money, actually... Um, we were given a sponsorship offer for really? the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somebody sent us an email asking us if they, um, they wanted, they were saying like, we'll give you, you know, 15% of the sale or some, something crazy like that. Anytime somebody comes in, you know, uses oh, your code. And what did you say to that? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because our fans need us. Isn't that right? That's right. I, I, I mean, people ask all the time why we don't have sponsorships, and I'm of the opinion that podcasts should try to avoid it unless they've cultivated a larger fan base. One, um, we're a very tiny podcast, um, but the second thing is is that uh, trust. Um, you know, this mm-hmm. isn't some sort of like quick crash get, a quick cash grab. Um, so, right, you could probably just tell wanted... that because we upload one episode every like three years. Three years, yeah, um, exactly. Which, which we would be more consistent <laughs> if we were making money. On it. <laughs> so you know that every time we put this together, it's because our fans need us, and I'm just going to keep coming back to that point. I think I think it has more to do with the fact that we wanted to show ourselves as people who care more about the material and right. about the podcast rather than no, you that's know what fair. I mean, like you know. So I'm going to put out a disclaimer though, since you said that. My disclaimer has everything to do with what you just said, and it is that my chair is the most rickety chair in existence. Observe. <laughs> Ooh. So I'm just shifting a little bit. Uh, okay. All right. Really throwing your weight into that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to uh, now give you guys my life update, which is uh, super amazing, like Aaron's. Um, I am uh, working. Wow. So, yeah. Well, didn't you get offered a... Well, it's, it's not official yet, so maybe oh, okay. some so I'll good keep my news mouth shut. to uh, some good news to share uh, at our next uh, our next episode of the Academy Podcast, possibly. Okay, um, yeah. and yeah, uh, up for it. So, so I say we I say we jump in. What do you say? Uh, yeah, I think so. I so, think so, and I hope hope to be home by the holidays. So yes. that way we can. Uh, yeah, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be nice. great. So we so. are reading Epic T. Cure, the art of happiness. <laughs> it's, epi- it's Epicurus. Or- so that is kind of confusing because we just did Epictetus and now we're doing Epicurus, mm-hmm. and we're also doing Lucretius at the same time. And it so. happens that this is a letter to a guy named Herodotus, so we might as well throw out all the names at once. So the thing with Epicurus, though, is that all of his stuff is letters. We only have we only have the three. We only have his email chains, basically. Mm-hmm. Like so, as it explains here, like as a really quick. Um, overview there is an ancient biographer by the name of diogenes laertius and he gives like a i guess an anthology um of like different philosophers of the time and and like gives examples of their work like small little you know pieces and explains a little bit about them so much like books written today you know about philosophy giving like broad overviews they were doing the same thing in the ancient world which is pretty interesting and so Diogenes Laertius wrote this section on Epicurus and included three of his letters. Now, the three letters are not, like, intended for, like, obviously, like, 
in-depth study he he was a prolific writer who wrote many many scrolls of of like how to like study exactly what he's talking about for his students um um, but uh, none of it survived to the modern day actually the only thing that does survive to us is diogenes laertius's biography of him and Hmm. the three you know and of course other people what they wrote and then we have lucretius lucretius is considered our best source even though lucretius is writing much later uh during the roman empire and Lucretius writes the um, On the Nature of the Universe, um, which is a large poem um, that comes into five or six books, depending on who you ask. And um, and uh, that's supposed to be modeled after his, you know, his On the Nature of Things um, from um, Epicurus. So that's kind of like our big source. So, so his first, this first letter is written by that Diogenes guy. No. So, well, okay. So in the book, just for the for the listeners so diogenes laertius you see that where it says you know excerpts from the life of epicurus that small little section no okay page 81 (laughs) like really simple uh yes oh that's diogenes that's diogenes right letter to herodotus is written by epicurus but it's compiled by diogenes oh okay gotcha gotcha so he was the editor Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. and so this first letter the letter to Herodotus Herodotus. is Epicurus. I get the sense he's trying to give a super brief overview of his scientific worldview. Correct. Like the physical theory. Now, here's what really struck me, and I feel like this is a good place for us to start. Mm -hmm. If I didn't know better and I only read this section, I would say that we're studying one of the earliest scientists, not a philosopher. Um, now, yeah. I, I know that the term scientist has changed over the years, and there was natural science and natural philosophy, so maybe you can help ground us. Who are we looking at here? Because this is very different than Epictetus or, or Plato. Yeah, it's a completely different... Um, it's a completely different work, and I'm really excited to cover it. Um, so the thing is is that um, you could describe – so let's let's take a step back away from scientist because it comes with a lot of – that that word comes – like as you, as you clearly pointed out, it comes with a lot of like linguistic connotations to it in our own modern day. Right. And then obviously the ancients had a conception of scientist that would be fundamentally different. Um, and, and in fact – you know, science was just seen as another branch of philosophy. So the philosopher was really the height of the of the uh, the learned person. And um, I think that uh, if we just hold true to that, let's just keep, let's just continue to call Epicurus, you know, a philosopher. Um, but the real question, I think, what you're getting at is that is he an empiricist? Yeah. Now, an em- yeah. Mm-hmm. So an empiricist would be somebody. For those who don't know, is somebody who for lack of better uh, not to get into the weeds of it right but empiricism is to say that proven through scientific method proven through the sense perception that empiricism has everything to do with that your epistemology the way that in which you know things in which you accrue knowledge is done purely by sense perception and sense data and that is a very the broadest kind of look at uh, of the empirical school of thought that I can give. And mm-hmm. so, and this will be developed later on as we cover more of the British thinkers from the Enlightenment. But is Epicurus an empiricist? Now, I would, I would say yes, but also with the footnote to say that there are people 
who are Epicurean scholars, which I don't know why you would be, but there are. <laughs> and then they, because somebody has to make money somewhere, they say, no, he is not. <laughs> and they write books arguing very, very fiercely that he is not an empiricist. I did not read these books um, because I don't see a point. Um, I think he's an empiricist. Like, let's not, like, you know, it, I think I think the arguments tend to hinge upon, you know, uh, his ethical view and how they had a very rudimentary view of, of Adams, you know, to begin with. Yeah. And, the, you know, the way that they understood things would not necessarily be classified as empiricism because they were still using ontological arguments and deductive reasoning to reach those conclusions rather than impure empirical study. And But to which the counter is, well, they didn't have that back then. And so, it, but if they did have it then, then they would have used it. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and, so, and I definitely got that sense. The only part where there might have been a little bit of contrast to that was when he seemed to talk about the divine. Um, and, oh, and, yeah, the gods are interesting. Yeah. You know, so so may, maybe when we get into that, we'll see more empiricism behind that than I first perceived. But oh, we will. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little deeper in. Um, when, when he first starts talking here, he goes into methodology uh, a little bit and and, and kind of lay some groundwork here. And then he goes into uh, uh, pretty much a, a discussion on the atom. Um, but and as a, as a as, and very quickly as yeah. a precursor, if for anybody listening, I apologize, but we are going, we're going to get stuck into this for a bit. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be like, we are going to talk about atoms and right, it's right. very interesting and it's very important. But for other people who are like, I don't really want to hear about like, subatomic theory from the ancient world i i guess wait till the later episodes where we talk about his ethics if that's more of your cup of tea but it, it's um, important because he he is not doing what plato did in the sense of plato looked at no, the at city the, the oh, yeah. broad and then yeah, deduced starts, yeah. from that mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. here epicurus is starting small and building up um very much the difference between a a chemist or biologist and a cosmologist or astronomist, you know, is is that a fair comparison to a, to a set in to an extent of where you start from, small or big? Yeah, I mean, there. Um, so you have, um, I mean, you have different forms of reasoning, right? And so there is, um, um, uh, modus tollens and modus ponens, right? So like and basically we can break those up into going from you know small to big and then big to small right yeah um and then of course you have deductive reasoning you have ontological reasoning um and and so there's between the between them both i mean plato and epicurus are are completely completely different i mean epicurus is like going to task against plato in this you know he is very much about like there is no such thing as forms um, there is no afterlife. There is no universal anything. Um, and in fact, this is why I, saw, I find Epicurus so fascinating as a thinker because of his, I think of his relevance in the modern day. You know, I read him and I'm like, okay, like he's wrong on a lot of things, right? Because he just didn't know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, like flat out wrong. But the fact that he got so many things right and the conclusions he reaches would find lots of fertile ground amongst 
the new atheist movement of today you know yes. the kind of richard dawkins yes. crowd um so and yet there are these little like i'm staring at it right now because that's what i was i was thinking the same thing as i'm reading it but then every once in a while there's this little curveball he throws like his opening in in section three nothing is generated from the non-existent this is so because yeah. otherwise anything could be generated from anything and not require seminal particles. And that kind of, maybe I'm, I'm not super scientific, but my mind kind of jumped to Big Bang Theory and, and supposing that, yeah, and we, we're, we supposed in that theory that nothing was generated uh, or that something was generated from non-existence. And he seems to say that's impossible. Here. Yeah, and that's, and, that's the, and that's the very first principle right of epicureanism mm -hmm. um like if if we were going to have a, a focal starting point uh, this is kind of like the you know this is for you know to bring it back to the republic as a comparison this is the conversation right the, the opening conversation um for epicurus the the very basis of atomic theory and the very basis of everything that he's about to go off of is that nothing nothing can be produced from nothing or something cannot be produced from nothing, mm -hmm. and and that which which necessitates that the universe is fundamental, indestructible, and unchangeable, and um, infinite. Right? Is that a fair word to use? Infinite. Right. Uh -huh. Right. And so so as an example, there you know there's there's this debate you know amongst the ancient Greeks where if you if you step in a river, can, well, can you step in the same river twice? Mm -hmm. Right, that that question comes up. Like, if I if I put my foot in the river and I take it out, and when I put my foot back in, is that the same river or is it a different river? <laughs> right. You know, and so the, and so you have thinkers that say, you know, everything is constantly in flux and everything is changed. We talked about this briefly with Plato. Yeah, everything is in flux and it's constantly in changing. And then there are things that are, or it's nothing is absolute. Everything is absolute. Nothing changes. And you have these two extremes. Now, Epicurus proposes that there is something. There is one thing that does not change, that is infinite, always has been, always will be, and that is the atom. However, everything else outside of it does change, but it is the atom that is the fundamental piece. It hmm. is the building block of everything. And so the universe has always existed. It is infinite because the atom is infinite. It has always been. It, there, because you can't have things that exist if, if there was nothing from it before. And so therefore the atom always has been. And but the the universe is not only infinitely old, but it is infinitely large. It continues on and on infinitely out. And so, and he uses this example of like you know, like you go to the edge of the universe, you stick your hand out, and there, there's the new edge of the universe, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and he says that the universe is both infinitely old, but it is also infinitely large. Um, and however, with the atoms specifically, there is not an there is an infinite amount of atoms, but a finite amount of kinds of atoms. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, and if we think about that, we don't know how many atoms are in the universe. I mean, like even in like I'm drinking a cup of tea right now in this mug. I mean, billions upon billions upon billions of atoms, right? And that comprise this mug. Mm -hmm. But, but. We know that, as according to the periodic table, there's only a certain amount of atoms that exist. Of course, like when we get into, he didn't have a concept of electrons and, and different energy levels as electrons become excited and move up and down that energy level, and it may change the composition of the atoms and then ionize particles and, and things of that sure. nature. But, but generally speaking, you know, when we're dealing with atoms, they are of 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 a finite set of a certain amount. 
Well, I feel like before before we continue, because the term Adam has so many preconceived notions for those of us who did take chemistry in high school, which I think is a majority probably of Americans, you know, um, we're, we're going to be carrying some baggage with us in that. Um, so, so is his understanding of the atom, and you just said he didn't have protons, neutrons, and electrons figured out in his mind, right? When he talks about the right. atom, is he simply talking about the theoretical building block uh, of of everything or is he really talking to an extent about what we have defined today as our scientific atom so yeah that's an excellent question um i i, I like to think that uh he is probably of the uh of the thought that atoms are kind of like um i wouldn't say that they're of this modern view right I, I think I think that would be too simplistic because it, you know the the Bohr's model of of the atom is not developed until f- much later in history. I think not until the early twentieth century, right? So I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, but the atomists were always known to us in in a philosophical setting. I mean, Democritus is kind of the big one who who kind of I mean, there are atomists probably before, but Democritus is like the one that is passed down to us as like kind of the 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 founder. Um, so. It, Atoms and Epicureanism are really the 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 word of minimum comes up the minimum of matter. Mm-hmm. They contain the minimum of at, of matter. They are the the smallest particle, the smallest amount of matter that one can conceive of. The absolute minimum. There is nothing smaller than them. And I know that's like hard. Like if you like close your eyes and think about like, well, what's the absolute smallest? Of matter, like what is the absolute minimum? Right. Nothing smaller. Like, and then it's Aristotle like gets into, right? Kind of, but then Aristotle can get into. Well, then couldn't that be infinitely divisible? You know, and where he's <laughs> like, if you think about it, like, couldn't there always be like, there's always a part of it? You know, and this is where you get into, you get into problems with edges and things like that. But we don't have to get into it right now. Um, and they and so atoms are like just to quickly go over what they are for him. They are completely solid. Um, they lack any secondary or accidental qualities. So what those are would be like color, taste, smell, um, any of those those things that we use with our sense perceptions, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and unchangeable, indestructible, constantly in motion, and and specifically a downward motion. We'll get into that. Um, and uh, and uh, in fact, they're they're so much in motion. Actually, is that he he actually predicted that if they are in a solid like when atoms make up a solid mass they are still vibrating much like our atomic theory today yeah, he says no they wow. would still they would still vibrate and knock against each other because they are suspended in the void um and so yeah they are imperceptible they're the absolute minimum of matter um mm-hmm. and they're moving so, and and they're moving but they're okay so so to clarify i like you brought up the void so he does say there is such thing as space which is not made up of atoms the space between atoms yeah so i think not, i skipped a step right uh maybe but um but but that that is to say that all of the cosmos and universe is not full of atoms but there is there is um void well he said if it was completely of atoms nothing would move right there, right, there would be, be not there would still be nothing <laughs> right so he says so basically epicurus basically breaks everything down to he says that really only two things exist i mean obviously like you exist and i exist right. and the mic in front of me exists but he would say that really what actually exists 
are two things is like fundamentally is the atoms in the void. Now the void is nothing like it's just space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the space in which atoms may move. Right. It's but the absence atom, of atoms. Right. It's the absence of, and so that's allows that their movement and the suspension in space. And for us to move, cause he says, well, obviously like we're able to move. So obviously there's not atoms, like there's not a solid mass in the way, mm-hmm. like constantly against us. And, you know, and it's not like a syrup either, you know, it's not like some sort of thick, um, you know, difficult to move kind of thing where we're just covered in atoms. Mm-hmm. He, he is saying that, um, atoms and, and void are, are fundamentally the two, the two things that exist. So this, um, was, this was about where I was like, okay, this is pretty cool that we're seeing yeah. the history of science play out, you know, the first, you know, so, or among the first subatomic theory and, and such. Um, and this is also where I started to think, yeah, but where does this apply how is he going to build on this or what so but before we move in that direction what else is important for us to know about the atom because he is going to build on this and eventually get to ethical systems and and whatnot um but is it is it enough to know that all right there the smallest form is is the atom it's in constant motion it moves through space there's an infinite amount of them and a finite type is is that enough to know to go forward or should are there other things we need to remember for future discussion well that's kind of like the very basics of of what like his atomic theory is i mean obviously there's a lot more of like like well how do how are things formed and and like well then where if if the atoms themselves do not contain you know like the the secondary accidental qualities that we perceive in the world today where do they come from mm-hmm. um you know and and like, what is this about the universe being infinite? But I mean, I guess it depends on what line of questioning you're going to follow, like of where you're going to take this, because there is a lot, there's a ton, a lot more to be say of like exactly how do Adam, like he gets into how atoms move, uh, the atomic swerve, um, like if atoms are traveling at the same velocity, like can, like, can they change their own direction? Can, can, you know, can atoms like really collide if they're the absolute minimum of matter, you know, mm-hmm. because if they're the absolute minimum, then they can never, they will always be reaching halfway points between each other. Can they pass each other? Right. You know so what he I mean? defines like, their little laws of physics. Sort of, so right. Right. There's always, there's a lot, there's a lot more to get into, um, which I have all succinctly written down just in case we need to. <laughs> if you think, it, you know, cause this is where I'm like, all right, if you think it's important, that we understand that stuff in order to understand how this applies when he starts talking about his basis for ethics, then I think it's worth it. But if not, I mean, frankly, I, I, w- I, like I was reading this section on sense perception and sight, and he literally says that they preserve the qualitative changes of the underlying physical object of their uniform impact on us from that source, which results from the atomic pulsations deep within the physical object. And I just literally wrote WTF. Like, I have no idea what he's saying. You know, so, so, so you tell me, is it important that we dig into that and explain it? I know you can. I think so. I think so, because I think I want to get into his... Mm, like his sense perception like how do we know things like mm-hmm. like we don't have to necessarily get into like this is all about how the atom behaves i would like to but i also am very boring as a person well, so <laughs> the, the thing that is, case, is that, yeah yeah <laughs> so so we have sight is the first one he mentions mm-hmm. and the way mm-hmm. and and so he describes and my little section comes from that right the the at, atomic pulsations deep within the physical object He's explaining how we view things that are composed of atoms. 
right? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. So, like, everything is composed of atoms. So then, you know, the thing that you are – let's continue with the example of a tree. If the tree is composed of atoms and, and you're seeing the atoms of the tree, but in their full composition, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, and so, sorry, what exactly is the, is the question here? Help me understand how he's – like because there is more detail here than just yeah when you look at a tree what you're really seeing are a bunch of atoms like he doesn't he explain the deep again what the hell does that sentence mean that they preserve the qualitative changes of the underlying physical is it (laughs) what i'm saying is is it not enough to just say okay yeah when we look at a tree we're really looking at a billion atoms that we can't tell the difference between well, I mean, you could say that, but but the thing is, is that how do how do the presence the question you you beg the question, right? So, like, how does the presence of atoms, like that, constitute a physical object, eventually reach the sense perceptions, right? It's the more about the how does it work, mm-hmm. um, and so and that at that point you get into you get into epistemology, right? It's like it, you're asking the question, well, okay, so let's if we set up a materialistic worldview, which is what we're doing, and that you have this materialist worldview in which. In which you know everything is made up of atoms and void. How do we come to how do how does our being, which is made up of atoms, come to an understanding of other things that are made up of atoms and perceive them? Yes, good question. So, <laughs> so <laughs> how? <laughs> um, um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to go through atoms that quick, actually. So this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're right into it. So cool. So if we're going to get into his, I guess his empiricism, um, we have to first understand that we're dealing with the subject of imp- what they called imperceptibles. So when dealing with the atoms, they were always like, okay, like it could be this, it could be that we don't know. Cause they're imperceptible, but fundamentally what the epistem uh, the, uh, the epistemology of Epicureanism would look like, um, you can only know things through sense perception. Is the only thing that's true. Okay, and Hence the senses, the hearing, and, smell, and sight right, sections. Right, and the senses, and the senses never lie. This oh. is important. Oh. The senses never lie to you. So completely different from Plato. Huh. The senses never lie, and the senses, in fact, if you have a false sense perception of something. So let's say you know, like you and I are on the beach, right, and we are looking at a at a at a, at a bird that is flying, and we both identify the bird, but then we go, well, what kind of bird is it? And then one of us says, I don't know. Um, you know, a seagull, and then another one says a snail kite, you know, and so what's, uh, you know, and then both of us are perceiving something, but but for Epicurus is that the, the, the sense perception is not lying to us. It is our, it is either our memory of something that is lying to us, it is our intellect as we're trying to over, like, I guess, like, try to come up with some sort of perception of it that is lying to us. You see what I mean? Yeah, but does he excuse, um, like what about color blindness did they even have a perception of that or somebody whose faculty of smell was weaker than others i think i think it's just your atoms are effed okay <laughs> like you know like it's just like so it's more your like atoms are messed up the senses so like do not lie to yeah us the senses ideally. never well yeah exactly well i mean but, but we're broken sometimes I don't think he. I don't think he. I, I never seen anything being addressed about that, but by Epicurus or Lucretius. I think. I think generally speaking, like you just kind of bite the bullet in terms of philosophy, and you say, "Well, okay. that's that's a, an exceptional case in which, like, obviously there's some sort of defect going on. I don't have to prove anything for that. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about you know the generic human being who's sure. able to, you know, got it. So, so that's that's like. Uh, 
everything is empiricism. Everything is sense perception. Um, all of what constitutes our sensory experience is infallible. Um, so, yeah, that's like the fundamental thing to know. Um, but uh, how does it work, right, is what you're asking. And now now I'm going to... Yes, I'm asking get only if you think it's important. <laughs> I, I think every I think everything that I've written down is important. I know that you're maybe you're wanting to rush to the ethics. No, yeah. no I'm not. I just I, I am hesitant because I just recognize this is so incredibly complicated in some. In, I think I think that's fashion. too bad. I think that's too bad because I've been looking for somebody who's been systematic, and finally I have somebody. <laughs> and here you are trying to rush me. All right, and take your I want to make sure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, I'm very excited. Um, so sense perception is based around this theory of Idola. Now there's a band called Idola, which I love very much. Um, but that is not them. Um, the theory of Idola is, I guess you can call them thin atomic films. Yes. I remember um, that. Okay. Yeah. So think about like, like film reels, like, like that, like, like really thin atomic films that emanate from physical objects. And the idola, what they do is that those atoms enter. Now, don't ask how it works. Like, well, where did the atoms of the idola come from? Like, mm-hmm. they come off the physical object. Does do physical objects produce atoms? And I'm like, no, 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 shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the idola, just let's just take it at face value. The idola thin atomic films are emitted from physical objects, and what they do is that they enter the proper sense organ to be perceived by the corresponding atoms of the sense organ. So and, truly, atoms yeah, are being sorry. shot. At- at something and received by the by the subject. I wouldn't say shot at you. It's not like a magnetic attraction. I would say more of like there's a constant, mm, like a bubble, an array of atoms that are that are emanating off of or constantly moving pulsating. off of mm-hmm. pulsating. Right, that's a good one for it. Pulsating from a physical object in which your sense perceptions are able to perceive. Okay, so so some sort of atomic film. Idola, mm-hmm. and is that the same for hearing and for smell as well as sight? Y- yes, but I think for hearing, how he does it is that because it, he he acknowledges that it's it's vibrating atoms, like in the air. That's interesting, isn't that? Or our Lucretius does that. That's like really what it is, though, right? Like sound waves. Yes, yeah. that's mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. Hey, good for you, mm-hmm. dude. Epicurus yeah. man, he figured it now, out. Now I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read something I wrote though about this specifically. Dude. Um, there is a slight variation in the theory of Idola between that of Democritus and Epicurus. This is how I write notes. <laughs> Generally speaking, um, secondary qualities of an object, since atoms do not in and of themselves possess them, remember those secondary qualities being, you know, secondary accidental. I'm going to keep using those interchangeably because we're philosophers now. Secondary accidental qualities being that of, you know, color um, and, uh, well, depending on who you ask, color, smell, um, taste, um, they, so atoms don't possess them, are only things we experience by our senses caused by the constant impingement of particular idola on the corresponding senses. Thus phenomenon are holy. So phenomenon, we don't think of like, we think of phenomenon like as, as like uh, strange things that happen, right? But phenomenon are just like, like your just general experiences are phenomena. Um, so anyway, hmm. um, the, thus phenomenon are wholly reduced to materialism. However, Epicurus changes the concept slightly by stating that the idola themselves take on objective qualities from the physical object. So the idola forms the atoms to be a specific color or shape, meaning that such qualities do in fact exist objectively in nature as a result of the atoms which we perceive. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's cool. I mean, it, 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 it makes sense. Again, I think my mind is just torn between. It, I think what will happen is when we have the practical application in the next section of, you know, because of this, now we believe this, I think we'll have the grounding we need. I think it's a little challenging because this is just so theoretical and I'm not yet sure. Okay, so what? So what? Yeah, I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break that down for you a little bit then. Mm-hmm. So, so with Idola, oh, basically, hold on. What first saying, I need to shift my butt, which is gonna cause a bunch of ruckus here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Take it away. <laughs> so, with Epicurus specifically, what he's saying is that, well, let's let's go back to Democritus. So, Democritus would say that the Idola exists, right, and they're they're impinging on your sense perceptions. Um, and so, however, they themselves, the idola themselves, do not possess, like, for example, let's use the tree, right? And mm-hmm. you are looking at a leaf on the tree, and let us say the leaf is green. Democritus would say, and kind of to, you know, eventually this matches up with kind of the later, like, empiricist thinkers of, of the uh, Enlightenment, he would say that the green doesn't really exist objectively. Like, there is no green like out there in the world, so to speak, you know how like Plato talked about mm, what did he say? The carpenter making a chair, right, or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, and then he said that there's a form of a chair, like the actual yeah, chair, the, the greatest is, chair in all right, exactly. And I said I'm dismissing that because it doesn't match up with his previous definition. So whatever. <laughs> but anyway, so let's just use that example. So like Plato would say something like, well, you know, if if the painter paints something green, then there is the actual green somewhere out there as a form right like a Mm -hmm. universal understanding like of objectively green democritus would say something along the lines that green doesn't actually exist it's just a word that we assign to a color that we are seeing in our eyes and that the idola the atoms themselves do not possess the color green what actually happens is is that that object emanates off the idola and then we in our sense perception just perceive it as green yeah, it's like so this we're may... interpreting data and informing green, but it is not it right. And this may answer your green. colorblind. This may answer your colorblind thing, right? Because mm-hmm. colorblind people like they don't see things in black and white necessarily. They just see things in different colors and hues, right? So, like for example, uh, example, <laughs> uh, for example, <laughs> for example, Doctor Poe, um, he uh, he is colorblind, and uh, he sees green as orange really and yeah Mm -hmm. and so and so uh you know like that's just his atomic arrangement so he would say you know democritus specifically not dr poe but democritus would say well green doesn't really like exist like we only perceive something that we call green like as a color you know that's Mm -hmm. just it's just a sense perception whereas epicurus i think makes the fatal error to say that green does exist because the idola forms the specific color or shape. Yeah. Like, it is not just a matter of our perception. He's saying that the the atoms do possess that. Like, when, when the atom emanates into the idola, the idola, like, are possessing that, that color. And so let's go with the color green. So then the color green, uh, the composition of the atoms, then hits us 
and then and then that particular atom that we have in our you know site so to speak that composition of atoms that is able to like the i guess the green coded atoms then perceive the green you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so therefore there is an objective green that exists out there um and and that's and that's huge like the right. distinction between those is, is is a big deal um and so i and so that's kind of like a i mean there's more to speak about idola um and so in, in that begs the question if atoms exist in nature you know how is it possible that secondary qualities exist out there as well and and uh and uh, the eventually we get to the answer that they don't you know eventually we get to berkeley um later on in the enlightenment who i i cannot wait to cover and berkeley he ends up he's so full-blown empiricist that he circles back to immaterialism hmm. and because he says that everything everything in your sensory experience is only contained in the mind as a subjective experience mm-hmm. so much so that he would even claim that things don't exist unless you're directly perceiving them all right they cease to exist when you're not pre- okay exactly yeah that exactly is, this does inform a lot okay th- that's helpful that that's helping to ground exactly you know why these details you know how they're going to be important later on as they're interpreted and and applied mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, believe it or not, we just crossed 45 minutes by my time Um, now. And and, um, um, I know you were interested in keeping these a little shorter. And I feel like the next section, the soul and its nature, is going to start bleeding into what could fit well into our second discussion. What do you think? I'm still not done with atoms. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> we're, not, we're not done with atoms. Two episodes of atoms. Please <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> Let's go, kids. All right. <laughs> I mean, we didn't even go over physics in the universe, the infinite, atomic swerve. Well, I feel like this stuff is so fundamental that, you know, also, if we take our time covering this, then we should be able to soar, you know, when it comes to the, to the well, yeah, application. I, I mean, I'm, I'm being half joking, right? But, like, I think when eventually we get to the soul, like, and we start talking about, like, the gods, <laughs> like, it's going to be like, mm-hmm. I'm able to draw on those terms and, like, continue to talk about, because, again, even the soul is atoms. Ta-da! So, right. th- like, being able to have that conversation, like, is super important and to lay that groundwork of, like, well, everything is atoms and trying to talk, talk about that. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, until, until then, and we can definitely record that soon. Um, but until then, guys, thanks for joining us. Um, and, uh, you know, as always, leave your feedback somewhere and uh, follow us on something. And uh, we appreciate you. <laughs> so. Yes, thank you so much, guys. We've, um, we've been getting some uh, fan emails finally. <laughs> Um, and they've been really, really heartwarming to, to read. And so I thank you all for that, for the feedback. Um, you know, hopefully we'll be doing this more consistently. Um, we have quite a few episodes already written and lined up for this series. So we're very, very excited to be moving on with this and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And hopefully, hopefully this, uh, this format is, is going to be fine for you that, uh, the, the chemistry is not lost, even though me and Austin are not physically with each other for right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, uh, feel free to, uh, you know, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Academy underscore podcast, um, email us at the Academy podcast at outlook.com. And, uh, yeah, other than that, um, thank you. Thank you.